This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another edition of the Brooklyn Basketball Podcast. Evan Roberts and the widely popular Mike Bisegli. You probably hear him all the time hosting the uh, fair weather fake. Wait, what, what's it called again, Mike? Bad weather fans. Bad weather fans. I always want to call it fair weather fans, but that's right. You're not a fair weather fan. You're a bad, no, bad. weather fan. <laughs> that's right, Evan. No. But you should check that out with Mike Biseglia and Nick Central. Today, I want to warn everybody, everybody who downloaded this episode, everybody who's listening right now, this episode may make you cry. This episode may make you throw things. This is a very, very depressing episode, but it was necessary. It was something we needed to do. And that is Mike and I going down memory lane and talking about some of the most painful losses in Brooklyn net history. But I want to start by admitting to Mike that I lied to him. I had told him we're going to list the worst losses and we're going to do the best wins. What? We're not doing the best wins, Mike, at least not this time. My apologies. You suck. That's terrible. I was so excited to talk about the 2002 Nets game five I was in in the Continental Airlines Arena where Keith Van Horn and the Nets went on an, an incredible 20 to one run versus the Boston Celtics and the Continental Airlines Arena went crazy. This is all bad. Yeah, it's all bad. It's all. It, oh. I, I'll tell you my thinking on it. I knew that you wouldn't be as excited to record this podcast if I told you it was going to be you all manipulated bad. me. I manipulated you. I I emotionally manipulated you, but here's the good news. A future podcast, maybe in a couple of weeks, will be all about the happy. I just think right. it's too difficult for us and for listeners to deal with both the really, really happy and the really, really sad. And I figured, let's get the negative out of the way, and then as we shift towards a brand new season, we'll be happy thinking about the positive. Doesn't that actually make a lot of sense now that I explained it? Yeah, it does. And you can get more content out of it. I get it. And we can split up the action. That sounds fun. My producer brain just jumped in your head. Am I okay to talk about New Jersey net bad losses? Is that all right, too? Of course. What do you, dude? I made a list. So, okay, just double checking. Basically, what I told Mike that, that I'm not lying about is I said, hey, make a list of the top five worst losses in Nets history. And of course, that includes New Jersey and it includes Brooklyn. Now, one thing I do want to make clear for any of our older listeners, because there are some people who go back to Long Island, they go back to the early days in New Jersey. I, I didn't want to include things I don't remember. So right. while the Nets played the box, yes, coincidentally, in the second round of the playoffs, yes, coincidentally, over 30 years ago, after the Nets upset the defending NBA champion Philadelphia 76ers in the early 80s, and that was a series that if we were around for, we'd probably cite losing game six the way they did. I think it was game five. There, there were a couple of brutal losses during that six-game series that they lost to the Bucs. We probably have it on the list, but for us, it's only history. It's going on YouTube, and they do have a few of those games on YouTube, but they're really, really grainy, and mm. it's tough to get emotionally <laughs> invested in it, so... Yeah. I do admit that these games are only going to include the 90s and above, obviously, uh, right. just to be fair. And it's not, it doesn't mean we're ignoring history. It means that painful losses are things you have to experience, not things you heard about. You know what I mean? No, I definitely agree. You have to be there for that. It's such a different experience when you're looking back at history 
you have to, when you're in the moment. I mean, that's what makes it. So I'm, I'm completely on board with you. You got to talk about the games well, that you you live through. And that's why they're on your list. It, it, it's funny. So for Met fans who are listening, one of the most painful losses in the history of the New York Mets would be the quote Mike Sosha game in the 1988 NLCS. I was five years old. So obviously I, I don't remember it. I know all about it during the pandemic. I watched it. I watched it from beginning to end just to get a sense of not just mm. the the things we hear about, like Kirk Gibson hitting a game-winning home run or Mike Socia hitting the shocking home run against Doc, but everything about that game. And, like, there's a little bit of pain because you're a Met fan, and so you know this is my team. This is the logo I love. These are the players I remember hearing about. But it's obviously a much different experience than, let's say, re-watching Game 5 of the 2000 World Series. So I appreciate history. I can feel a little bit of the pain, but it's obviously very different. Now, with that said, Mike, I made a list. I made a top five list. And for some reason, I could not keep it to five. <laughs> it, was, it was very difficult. There were eight particular games that were like, boom, these games have to be there. Did you find that same difficulty of trying to narrow it down to just five? I did, but I kept it at five. But I'm curious then if the expansion then creates into the there was a couple more on my list that were I was kind of debating back and forth. So I can adapt and I can add because we're probably in sync with some of the similar games, I would assume, because we're, we're pretty much the same age as well. So, I, uh, yes, I, I would agree with you on that front. And I found a lot of like similarities between a couple of seasons that I thought were interesting and a couple of series. So I'm curious to get your take on that once we get there. Well, the other thing that, you know, whenever we've talked about painful losses, whether I was doing it in the bracket of pain with Beningo a couple of years ago, or even right now, I always say that what happens next plays a big part of this, um, that this recent game seven loss to the Bucks may go down on our list next year if we win the NBA championship. It's the way I think Red Sox fans view Aaron Boone. In the moment, that was one of the most painful losses in the history of the Boston Red Sox. But I think when you look at it now, it becomes, yeah, it's a footnote because they went on to win the World Series next year. What I tried to do with this is close my eyes and, and admit how I felt in the moment, right. not knowing what was going to happen next. Because when you suffer a brutal loss, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen next. And obviously, the reason I'm bringing this up is because there is a game that I'm sure if it didn't make your list or isn't topping it. your list. <laughs> it's on it. I have a whole story about it, too. Don't worry. All right. There's a particular game that knowing what happened next probably eases it, but in the moment was as painful as it gets. I tried to close my eyes, Mike, and say, how did I mm -hmm. feel in the moment? Not how do I feel now knowing what happened next? You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, we're on the same page with that. So that's good to know because, yeah, something that happens next can dictate how you feel about things. But I think when you just get in that second, in that 48 hours, or whatever it might be, if it's not a you know game seven, you have to feel how you how you were internalizing all of that. So that's good to hear. I like that. All right. So it was very difficult to get to five, but I did eliminate three, and I'll tell you the three that I painfully eliminated. Okay. And yes. if any of them are on your top five, just tell me, and we won't get into details. We'll wait until it's discussed in your top five. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Let's all do right. it. I one of them that was very very close, but I had to cut out was all the way back in 1998. And that was game one, first round, Nets-Bulls in Chicago, United Center, a chance to win that game late against the Michael Jordan-led Chicago Bulls. It, I think as a 14-year-old, the idea of, oh my God, we're going to steal a game against this dynastic all-time great basketball team was incredible and I had friends over that day who were sort of net fans but not really uh, I think in the moment as a kid that one hurt and I was like oh my god if we win game one it's best of five you never know what's gonna happen next right. but I felt like all right I gotta kind of push that one aside because it was against the Chicago freaking Bulls in 1998 yeah, that is not on my list of the top five. And I remember that game very distinctly because I was at Ross Sidens. We were in his basement and it was me, Jeremy Burst and Ross Sidens, I believe Dan Goldwhite. And we were watching this game and all of a sudden going, 
almost thinking, God, like the, the Nets could have a chance to steal this game. And that's probably, I was trying to think back, like my first time really feeling Nets pain. And I think though, that's my first memory that I have of that. Cause it was, or, well, maybe not, maybe I could, maybe not. Maybe it was some of those Cavs series. I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah, that, that is not on my list, but I do remember it well. And then of course, you know, last year during the pandemic, when they came out with the uh, Chicago Bulls, the Michael Jordan doc, you know, we got to see that replayed a little bit and then we got to see the Nets have a chance, but then ultimately come up a little short. It, just, just remember though, when they played Chicago in that game, the Nets were losing basically the entire game. They were never getting blown out, but it just kind of felt like, okay, the Bulls are toying with us. And the Nets actually took the lead with less than a minute to go. Chris Gatling hit a couple of free throws mm. that put the Nets up by one point with 38 seconds to go. Okay. And shockingly, <laughs> And this is absolutely shocking, but this is what happened. Michael Jordan went to the free throw line down one with, again, like 35 seconds to go, whatever it was, and split the free throws. He actually made the first one to tie it, missed the second one, so it was a tie game. And I think they had one shot with about 10 seconds to go to win the game, and they came up short. Game went to overtime, and it was a close game in overtime. But eventually the Bulls pulled away. I forget exactly what happened. I think MJ was basically at the line the entire time and they came up short. But I mean, think about that. You're facing yeah. this dynastic team. You're up a point with 35 seconds to go. Like they were a stop away from stealing game one against a team that didn't usually lose games in the first round. That was the other thing. This wasn't an era. First of all, it wasn't the best of seven era. It was the best of five, five. era. And the Bulls never lost early round games to teams that they were clearly better than. So in the moment, it was it was tough. It was painful. Yeah. No, and the Nets game, too, were pretty close in Chicago as well. They they held, they, they did a nice job in that second game. And then third game back in New Jersey, that was the Scott Burrell game where he went off and just torched them. And they, they never even had a chance. And Chicago finished off the Nets at three. Yes. The other one I had to cut off the list uh, was game four, 2013, first round, the triple overtime collapse. They were up by 14 with three minutes to go. C.J. Watson misses a dunk. And then the Bulls go on an incredible run. I mean, down 14 with three minutes to go. That's tough to blow a lead like that. Bulls came back, tied the game. They ended up losing in triple overtime. And it felt like that really ended the series because that was game four. So that put them up, if I'm not mistaken, three games to one. Yes. So it felt as if it was over. I try to tell you how I feel in the moment. In the moment, it felt like the series was over. Stunningly, the Nets won game five and game six to force the seventh game. But as difficult as it is, maybe it's because it's the first round. Maybe it's because it's only game four. But now that I say it out loud again, they blew a 14-point lead with three minutes to go and had a dunk missed by C.J. Watson that would have put him up by 16. Uh, that was a freaking brutal loss. Oh. Not on my list, but again, another another one of those brutal losses that were like just behind in the cut. You think about what is the difference in the Nets' history if he makes that dunk, then the series ultimately goes to two to two. Maybe they win a round. Who the heck knows what happens from there? But to be up that many points and go down that fast is truly remarkable. And again, it is the first round, but the reason that it's even in this list and in this consideration from both of us is because of just how painful and brutal it was when you have the this idea of, okay, here's a dunk, go up 16, couple of minutes left, and then to see the wheels fall off so fast, truly terrible. This is going to stun you because this is not on the list. I had to take this one out because I gave this major, major thought when comparing it to the other games that I really wanted to put on the list. I pulled game seven, 2013 against the Bulls at home. I pulled it off. It did not even make the top five. As we recall, same series. Nets win game five. They win game six. The Bulls are just, they have nobody. I mean, they're banged up with injuries where Nate Robinson is basically the big time Bulls scorer. Joe Kim Noah sticking up our ass. And the Nets lose a game seven at home at Barclays Center, which felt like death, especially because the Knicks had just advanced and they were opening up the second round the next afternoon at Madison Square Garden. But I took it off the list because as depressed as I was that night and as depressed as I was that weekend, and this is going to sound like, oh my God, cold taken times 10. I had this feeling of, you know what? They're going to do something big though. They're going to look at this roster, look at this team and say, all right, we're going to do something big to try to fix what caused this team to lose to an injury-riddled team in a seven-game series, which they did. They did do something big. 
They went out, they hired a new head coach. They went out and made a monstrous trade. None of those things really worked out, but that was why my one saving grace that I, I remember walking out of that building that night thinking it's not the end of the road. Maybe something bigger and better is about to happen. So I pulled game seven, 2013 out of the top five. Yeah. It's, it's funny. So, so far we're really in sync with all of the same games and we're, I, you know, it looks like we're going to be going back into that golden era when Jason Kidd first arrived to the nets where we'll get some of the bad losses. And then of course, something happened a couple of months ago, but with you as well, it's funny how I actually feel like the game with CJ Watson felt more painful than the other games you were just referencing. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but like you said, I, maybe it goes back to the idea when it felt like the series did end with that miss, even though they did win the next two games, it just had this sense of doom that when you have that big of a lead, there's something about seeing that unfold before your eyes in real time that just really made the pain that bad. And yeah, even though they lost that series in seven, I, I guess I knowing that the team didn't really have much to go on moving forward, like it was like they had a championship run. It's the painful losses are when you know that you're on the cusp of the the worst losses are when you know you're on the cusp of getting something that you've never tasted before, and that's what makes them the worst. Yeah. The, the only thing I'll say is that game seven, even though it wasn't blowing a big lead late, just comparing game seven versus game four of the same series, it was a slow death. And in a way, that sometimes is more painful. You're in your own building. You have a game seven in your own building where you had just won back-to-back games, one on the road, one at home to even force this game is a game you have to win because you are facing a team that you're better than, especially with all the injuries that they're facing. And if you remember that game seven, it felt like they trailed the entire game between a range of four to nine points. And so it was like this slow, painful, methodical death as compared to, hey, we got to win. And then boom, like a slap across the face, it's gone. It's a different kind of pain. And there's also the, the end game that this is it, you know, I always try to be, I may not sound like an optimistic guy, but even when my team is down 3-0 or 3-1, there's that hope of, well, you never know. You know, the series isn't over yet. The season isn't over yet. Like, we're still watching as diehard fans. You lose a game seven, you lose an elimination game. That's it. There's no more talking yourself into, well, they Hmm. still have a shot. So that's why if I had to compare those two games, and they both missed my top five, I'd say game seven was worse, but, you know, Listen, what does it say about our painful losses that both of them can't even make our top five? That's right. I'm I'm so intrigued now to hear what you have in store for the top five. And, and you know, I have an idea of where you're going, but I'm more curious uh, of, you know, the order of how they laid out and played out in this whole endgame. I'm very interested in that. All right. You ready? Let's do it. Number five on my list. We go back. I don't know if this one's going to be on your list, actually. This is an interesting one, but this one really, really hurts with me. Game six, 2004, Eastern Conference semifinals, the New Jersey Nets, the Detroit Pistons at the Meadowlands. This is the game that followed the triple overtime classic, which would be on our list as all-time great victories, I assume. And this was a home game in which the reason why, well, first of all, did this make your top five this game? It did, yes. Oh, it did? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we do really think alike, huh? Well, then you explain, maybe it's the same reasons, why this game, because this did not eliminate them. They had to go to Detroit and get absolutely destroyed in a game seven against the Pistons a few days later. Why did game six, 04 semis make your top five? And it was number five for me as well. Me too, look, holy crap. (laughs) Well, it made my list because the game, because, because game five was such a great win to go up three games to two and had so much momentum going back to Jersey that you, in your head, you, you felt like the Pistons were done. It felt like they had just, they had put the dagger in them and it was ready to move on and get into the Eastern Conference semifinals. And I remember I was at this game versus the Pistons in New Jersey. And I remember that the Nets went up early. Like they went up early. And I was trying to look up the box score real quick. I believe they went up early. Detroit called a timeout. They were down like 10 points halfway through the first quarter. And it started to click in my head. Okay, the injuries this whole season, the the firing of Byron Scott, Lawrence Frank's now the head coach. But you know what? We've got an all-star in Kenyon Martin. Jason Kidd's playing great. But then the injury to kid slowed down. His injuries hurt him. And that was 
that was probably the best Nets team of talent on a front-loaded side because Kenyon was an all-star. RJ had finally developed, and they didn't need to lean on Kidd as much as they had in the previous seasons. Then Detroit came back, won it. Game 7 wasn't even close. Pistons went on to win the championship, so you start thinking in your head, if the Nets win that game, maybe things are different moving forward. Well, you nailed it. It was a 13-2 to run to begin the game. Uh, so they get off to this great start. I'm thinking the same thing. I think we all are. Pistons are dead. I mean, considering the way they lost game five, they're dead. And then they responded. They had a huge second quarter. We were down by 14 at the half. And the fourth quarter was reasonably close. Like, I think we trailed most of the second half, but came back, made it a two-point game. And then they pulled away late. And the Pistons forced a game seven. And yeah, there was that, that feeling of, we are dead going into game seven. Like, whoa. I mean, there there is no shot, especially with the status of Jason Kidd, who was incredibly banged up. I don't know how much we knew at the time about his injury. Do you remember, like, what we knew at the time about how injured Jason Kidd was? Oh, I don't know specifically if they gave away details, but it was obvious, you know, now looking back. Well, yeah. I think his knee had knee issues, right? It was like yes. tendonitis in his knee or something. And he just was not the same player. But it was it was because Kit was because Kenny and RJ had become better NBA players and weren't just like high flyer dunkers. I mean, Kenyon started to develop. That's why they were just in these series. So you you, you know, if kids but that's why it's just so impossible. If kids healthy and these guys are better, the stars align, but it, it just didn't didn't work out. He wasn't good in that series. You know, he was, so he looked injured. So again, I'm not sure what we knew at the time. Also, it's a different world in 2004. We're not getting the information we get now, but watching him, he wasn't the same guy. I mean, he was just, he was Jason Kidd playing on one leg. So yeah, it felt as if this series was over losing this game. And it also felt, Hey, what is the future of this roster? Cause we all knew Kenyon Martin was a free agent. We all knew yep. that we weren't sure what was going to happen with him. I think we were confident, okay, Jason Kidd will get fixed, he'll have surgery, he'll be fine. Little did we know what next year was going to look like, which was Kenyon's gone, Jason Kidd's hurt, they make the surprising trade for Vince Carter, which kind of salvaged the 2005 season, even though we got annihilated in the first round of the playoffs. So in a lot of ways, this game was the end of the run. And it was really the end of the run. I mean, game five was like the last hurrah, and then game six and game seven was the end. So we are... We're a lockstep. That's both of our number fives. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, I see similarities, but you know, the major difference is the 2022 nets are going to be, you know, this is just hopefully the beginning of things, but just to see a team up three, two after an epic game five, win, go up three, two below a series. And then it's the second round and the team, they blow the three, two series lead to goes on to win a championship. <laughs> I know. I know man. that that's why, and I think it's ingrained in our mind. The Brian Scalabrini game, as great as it was, always gives us pause on just because you win a great game doesn't mean everything's going to follow suit. And I think I remember citing that on the air after the Durant game. Hey, this was amazing. This was an epic moment, but I can't get out of my brain the Brian Scalabrini game. That was an amazing mm-hmm. game. That was an amazing moment. And they responded by losing the next two games. And that was the end. So that was it. All right, next on my list, number four, game five, 2003 NBA Finals. Where is that on your list? Game five, 2003 is number three for me. All right. I have it at number four. You have it at number three. Uh, Were you at this game, by the way? I was at this game, yes. I was at this game. Me too. (laughs) Me too. I was not at at game six, though. No, neither neither was I. That, of course, was in San Antonio, Texas. So did you get the same goose pimples, goose bumps that I did when you saw our beloved New Jersey Nets wearing the ABA retros for this game? Because that gave me – I remember turning to my dad, and this was my first ever NBA Finals game. I did not get to go Mm. to Nets-Lakers the year before. I hadn't gone to any of the previous games this year. So this was a very, very special moment, getting to see my favorite basketball team in the NBA Finals. This was a time in my life where I didn't live in the area. I lived in Maryland. So, in fact, my first ever Nets playoff game was in Charlotte. It was not Mm. in New Jersey. It was a a Nets-Hornets game during that second-round series a year prior in 2002. So I was a... 
was a Nets fan, but I was watching everything with the uh, NBA League Pass uh, during the regular season. Did you go to the the win in Charlotte, or did you go to the loss when Kid got like all bloodied up? No, I went to the next game. I went to the win. Game four. I went to nice. the final game that that incarnation of the Charlotte Hornets mm. ever played. Which do you remember that 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 series turned out to be the Hornets' last games as the Charlotte Hornets before they moved to New Orleans? That I don't remember at all, to be honest. That timeline. So that we we ended the Hornets. How about that? We ended the Hornets. They went to New Orleans. Then they eventually changed their name, and then the Hornets came back. Yeah. Mm. So I I think to me this game it felt a lot like the slow death that I mentioned in other games where we trailed most of this game. We were playing catch up against the Spurs team that, you know, every game for the most part was really, really close. It was low scoring. It was a battle. It was a grind. But even though we were playing from behind late in this game, I felt like they had a shot. They had a few possessions where they were down by three and it was like, all right, here we go. One more stop, one more stop. And we could push through and Steve Kerr, that son of a bitch. It was him, yeah. Must have hit. I, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'd say two or three like backbreaking shots late in that game. So we never took the lead. We didn't blow a lead, but it was that, that push that like, all right, we're down in that range between five and nine the entire game, but there were a few moments late where we had a shot to tie it. We were one stop away. And then obviously you just knew going back to Texas under that old two, three, two format, we're done. Like we're not going to win two games in Texas. See, that's funny. And I, I imagine maybe these games are swapped. So I have the 2003 game five as my number three spot. Cause again, I think because I was there that add to how annoying of a loss that was for me personally, but yeah, you're, you, you, that game, I do remember Steve Kirk's. I remember specifically where we had seats. I could see him coming back to the bench and getting high fives because we were behind where the Spurs bench area was. And I remember just specifically seeing him come back and he hit so many dagger shots where he just killed Kill the Nets. And I'm with you, Evan. I loved when I they came out in those retro jerseys. And I have this real memory of Kenyon coming out to the crowd. And he would do this before the games where he would put his hands up in the air to get all the fans excited. And I saw him in those retro jerseys. And they were flying around. And it's it's 2-2 in Jersey. They, they, they've evened up a series versus the Spurs. Like, here, here we are with the opportunity to go up 3-2. to two, And this team is two, two games away from winning a championship. And again, it's another one of those crushing losses. And you just felt as if that game, I'm so there with you. They just could never quite get over the hump, but they weren't blown out. It was in that range where they just could not make the shot or get the stop that they needed. And then ultimately they got the loss and it was just, oh. That, those Steve Kerr moments, you're right. And I remember that too, that like he had his hair with the buzz cut and he had the jersey tucked in tight and he would just hit shot after shot and he just killed the Nets that night. Yeah, and, I, and I'll never forget the walk through that long bridge tunnel that they have hmm. to get to the next parking lot. And I was there with my mom and my dad. And my mom really shouldn't have been there because she doesn't love sports, no sports. And she was saying all the wrong things to me as we left. No offense to her. I love my mom, but she was giving me the, are you okay? How you feeling? And what she didn't realize is what my dad knew, which was just don't say anything. <laughs> just shut up. Don't yeah. interview Evan on how he feels about this. But I do appreciate them taking me. You know, I was yes. from Maryland and I appreciated them both getting tickets. I sat upper deck behind the basket. So they were God awful seats, but it was really cool just being in the building for an NBA finals game and, and being there to see my basketball team, but walking through that tunnel and, and, and I could be wrong. Someone could, I guess, fact check me on this. I felt like it was pouring rain and, and maybe I'm mm. mixing that up with another Nets game. I left, but it felt like it was just teeming outside. So I don't know if someone can fact check that by looking at the weather forecast from that date in 2003. Probably could. Do you remember anything about rain or no? That I don't remember. That I don't recall. I could not. I've left that parking lot so many times to walk back to the car with my dad. I could not tell you that specific memory if it was raining that day. Now, if you give me a second to think, and I can use my brain to like try to think back to walking back to the car, maybe I could muster it up. But as of right now, no memory of that. There, right. are, there are, there are, I have memories of leaving the parking lot in a bad mood, 
but that is you know with a with with weather in mind and things happening one time i went to a game and i forgot a shoe i have a story about that but i don't remember <laughs> leaving the party yeah it was net sixers regular season 2001 we were in a rush my dad got home from work late we got to the uh the continental airlines arena it was net sixers i said dad we got to go back i forgot one of my shoes that i do that's remember. fantastic we should do a whole was, podcast about that he was not thrilled all right. In fairness, I've given you my number five and my number four. This recent game was my number four. It was your number three. So why don't you fill in the blank? What is the fourth worst loss in Nets history for you? So I go to game six, 2003 NBA finals. And I have this in mind because psychologically, I thought the team was done after they lost game five, but they got into game six and they weren't done. I mean, they were up eight after the end of the first quarter. They were up two at the half. And or, I believe they were up two or three at the half. And then they had a lead going into the fourth quarter where it just completely collapsed. The Spurs outscored the Nets 31 to 14. And think about this for a second. The Spurs scored 31 points in the fourth quarter and just scored 88 total for that game, which is just crazy in retrospect. So the Spurs then won the NBA championship. So I put this why four and why it was quite not as painful as game five, just because I went in with the mindset that I didn't think they could win this game. But then looking back, you know, they go in there and they have this lead and they blow it. And then that was just the end of end end of the end of the season for them. And then all the question marks start swirling. Is Jason Kidd coming back? Is he going to the San Antonio Spurs? So there was a lot of question marks leaving that game. And yeah, the season was over. But something about seeing it live in person and and in my mindset thinking the season was over made that one not quite as painful, but still dreadful to even come up and think about. Oh, we disagree. We disagree strongly. This was and is number one. Wow. This is the number one. And here's why it still takes the cake over everything else. And and, I, and it's fair to, to say I'm a walking contradiction because I agree with the point you made that losing game five made it feel like it was over. There was no way we were going to go to Texas and win game six and seven. And that's true. And that's certainly how I felt walking out of the building in game five. And it's certainly easy for us to say now all these years later, nearly 20 years later, oh, they had no shot to win those two games. Totally get it but they're up by double-digit points in the fourth quarter of this game, okay? In that moment, sitting in my Maryland apartment in Silver Spring, Maryland, I thought we were forcing Game 7. I was there thinking, not that we're going to win Game 7. I want to make that clear, but we were going to force a mother-effing Game 7 of the NBA Finals. This is what you dream of. Like, as a Met fan, I've seen my Mets in the World Series – I haven't seen a game seven of the World Series. I haven't even seen a game six of the World Series. They lose in five. So it was the idea of, oh, my God, we're going to force a seventh game. Look, the odds are going to be against us. David Robinson's final game. Speedy Claxton's becoming a pain in the ass. Timmy Duncan's an all-time great. Like, I get it. The odds are we weren't going to win. But early in that fourth quarter, it was ours. And what haunts me was the number 72. And you could look this up. They were stuck at mm. 72 points for 45 freaking minutes. I think they went up 72, 62, something like that, something in that range. And that's when the run began where we couldn't hit a freaking shot and the Spurs were just slowly piling it on. And obviously, look, as much as we love Kenyon Martin, Kenyon Martin a was bad a game. disaster in this game. Yeah. Three for 23. He's our John Starks moment. You know, mm. as much as Nick fans love John Starks, they'll cite his awful shooting in game seven. For us, it's Kenyon Martin game six against the Spurs. But this is as close as I've ever been to this day to winning an NBA championship or a World Series or a Super Bowl or anything. Never have I witnessed any of my teams this close to winning a championship. They were a win and a quarter away from being the goddamn champions of the world. And to top it all off, and I'll admit it, when this game ended, I cried like a baby. And I was a grown man at this point. I was 20. I think I was 20. I was born in 83. Yeah. No, I guess I was 19 because uh, this is 2003. It's before my birthday. So I'm 19 years old. So I'm, I'm close to a grown man. And I, I cried. Like a baby, like weepingly cried like a baby, not little tears. I mean, out and out bawling like a bitch. And for that reason, this is my number one.
I've never cried after a bad loss. I've cried after good wins. I've never cried after bad losses. My bad loss routine is going more into the quiet mode and just not doing anything mode and just sitting there mode and replay mode in my brain and getting really sad. But I've never gotten to the point where I've had to cry from a bad loss. It's the emotion on the good side that makes me grow tears out of my little eyeballs. But to go that end, I don't even know what it would take for me to cry on a bad loss. I'm I'm glad I didn't have to watch that scene. That might have been very depressing and then made me cry on top of that. It's interesting, though, that's your number one. You, you lay out a good point because, yes, that's the closest they've come to actually winning a championship that they're in the game in the fourth quarter in game six that would force a game seven. And I can only react to my emotions of the time of why I didn't feel as distressed about it. And I, I, I'm trying to think back because I have losses that are worse for me, even though that was as close as they were going to get. And I just think in the back of my head, I didn't think they, they could do it. And I always that that was that team just could not score enough points at all the time. I mean, it was a very different NBA back then. I mean, look at the fact that it was 88 77 and the Spurs had 33 points in the 31 points in the fourth freaking quarter, meaning they were scoring 17 and 19, 20 right. and, the, and the rest of them. But it was just I always had the inevitability that they would never be able to close it off. And I think that's what for me was like, I just didn't think they were going to well, win that. Well, you're. You're being very rational. You're not necessarily wrong with anything you say. And, and by the way, I'm mostly like you. I don't usually cry after losses. And I and I think that because it was the end, because I think I was more crying about the run being over and maybe realizing, wow, I don't think they're ever going to win. You know, they had just been to back-to-back -back NBA finals. The first one felt as if, hey, we're just happy to be here. I mean, there's a reason why, unless – your list and my list are going to be that different. And I'm, I'd be stunned if any of them are there. We don't have anything from the 2002 NBA Finals. No. None of us do. And the reason we don't is because even as fans, we had the attitude of we're just so glad to be here. We're so honored to be sharing a court with Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. And by the way, they had a lead in game three. Like they could have yeah. won game three of the NBA Finals. Let's not act like they just got blown out in all four games. But the next year was different. 2003 was very, very different. We had the cover of SI. Who wants to play these New Jersey Nets? And so I think a lot of crying and being upset was the end of that, the end of the run and not knowing what was next. I haven't cried like that after any kind of loss or win hmm. since. I'm like you. I emotionally, ha I usually have tears of joy, tears of happiness. But I think those tears and thinking back to that is probably why this had to be number one on the list. So you added at number four. I had it at number one. That's our biggest difference so far in the ranking yeah, brutal losses. And I, you, made, you brought up a good point because that Net Laker game three in Continental, the first NBA Finals game there, the Nets did have a real shot of winning that game. I yes. mean, they were in control for some of it, took a lead. Kid was brilliant. I remember there's like a bank shot he made that helped them. RJ had a couple of nice dunks and then – Ultimately, it was just specifically remembering, but it's like kind of like flashing back in my head. But Kobe Bryant was brilliant. Shaq was just too much of a force down low. And then their role players just always hit big shots when they asked to. They, that, that I say them out loud. I mean, that team was freaking unreal. dynasty. With Shaq, Kobe, and then the best role players you could have. Derek Fishers. I mean, they just hit shot. Robert Ory was on that squad, I believe. I yep. mean, they just didn't miss shots. It was crazy. Well, I mean, look, they were facing a dynasty team. I mean, this was yep. the end of their dynasty. The final year of that dynasty was beating us and sweeping us in the NBA finals. But there's a reason why none of those games are going to register on a list like this, because I think yeah, exactly. we just we really knew the deal. And that's why 2003, I think, was worse, because 2003 wasn't, oh, my God, we're in the NBA finals. This is cool. It was business trip. All right. We've mm -hmm. been here before. We've tasted being in the NBA finals before. We got embarrassed. Now it's time to win. So here's the deal. We both have two games left on our list. You've got your number one and number two ranked losses in Nets history. I've got my number two and number three ranked losses in Nets history. And it's painfully obvious what these two games are. They're yeah. going to be identical. So let's just get it out of the way because it's recent. Where did you put this year's game seven? Put it number two. You put it at number two? I put it I, at number two. I agree with you. I put that at number two as well. I put game seven, 2021, 
Eastern Conference semifinals as number two. We both could not pull the trigger and make it number one. And by the way, next year at this time, we may move this game down the list. We may say, mm-hmm. screw it. We want a title. This is, doesn't even register anymore. But or, in the moment. Or, yes. or we put it up to number one because something. Well, I guess if that. if the, Well, then again, there's going to be something even worse. Then. <laughs> let, let my brain not go there. Go ahead. I apologize. Yeah, look, for right now, it's on the list. Yes. Uh, and I don't know what we're supposed to add. We've talked about this game. We all know how we feel. It's tough sometimes ranking things that soon after. I mean, it really has only been two and a half months, three months, whatever it is, since that game finished. Uh, I mean, the only thing I'll just add is walking out of that building with, I was shaking. I couldn't say a word. I was so not even mad. I guess it was just disappointed. Uh, sad would be the descriptions of how I left leaving the Barkley Center for Game 7 2021. And, and for now, for me, it's number two on this list. That's where I have it. And you have it at number two as well, right? Yeah, and I have it too. And that, that's actually kind of interesting you say that because I was at home just watching on TV. So when it was over, I just turned the TV off and just sat. I just sat on the chair for like an hour plus and just didn't move and just sat there. So you had to, I mean, I think it's so much worse, but you have to get up walk with a mass amount of people, go to your car and then drive home. And you had the instant reaction podcast that was very, you know, for you, I'm sure maybe a little therapeutic, depressing, sad, good listen, but you know, obviously in the moment was just brutal stuff. But what was, what was it? What was the rest of the crowd? Like, I'm curious when you were leaving the Barkley center, what was it like around you and all the people? Was it just kind of like a, like a morgue silent? Yeah, there, there. Sometimes silence is the worst. There's that eerie, eerie, eerie silence, and I have felt that a few times as a fan. I felt that after the Mets lost to the Cardinals, Game Seven, two thousand six, the Beltron strikeout, where you could hear a pin drop. That's mm. what I heard, which is good, by the way, because that's what it should be. You know, there weren't any Buck fans there making noises. You know, we've always heard, ah, there's no real Net fans. Everybody's so casual. If you're that casual, you would have heard people talking. You know, you would have heard mumblings it had that real silent morgue shock sound as we were leaving and i was lucky to get out of there really quickly because i game planned where i parked the spot to where i was sitting to where i can just immediately get out of the building so most of the walk me and my wife had were down the streets of brooklyn to get to where we parked so i was out of that building very very quickly but it was quiet it was silent it was depressing and i give my wife credit she handled it perfectly she didn't say a word yeah, because there's nothing to be said. I mean, well, what are you going to say? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's not your fault. It's heartbreaking. It is what it is. But whatever. We've, we've talked enough about game seven of 2021. Let's get to the last game. This was number three on my list. And apparently this is number one. This is the most painful loss in net history for Mike Biseglia. And of course, we're talking about a game in which the Nets went on to win this series. That's right. That's right. We're talking about game three of the 2002 Eastern Conference Finals against the Boston Celtics in Boston, one of the biggest collapses in the history of basketball. The floor is yours, sir. I remember watching this game, and when it came to an end, the only player that could actually do anything for the Nets in that fourth quarter was Aaron Williams. He was the only one that was capable of doing anything for them for some reason. And I'll never forget after that game, Paul Pierce, Antoine Walker, getting onto the scores table, fist pumping. It was a celebration like I had never seen before. And I was so into that season and so invested. And I was... There were so many Celtic fans in my life at that point that were just giving me crap for that season and for that game. I remember Celtic fans saying, oh, I guess the national broadcast at Continental Airlines Arena, they've never been there before. Are they going to know how to even find the outlets where they can put on the broadcast because no one's cared about the Nets? And there was so much anger and sadness after I left that, seeing how that game collapsed so fast, so viciously. I got in my car and I drove to the Palisade Center Mall and I got to the mall. I found a bench and I sat on the bench in the Palisade Center Mall for hours and hours just letting that loss soak in because I was so devastated by it. There was something about Paul Pierce and his excitement and seeing them go down two to one and seeing this dream season come to an end before they went to the NBA finals that it caused me so much pain. I couldn't handle it. 
Wow. So you're sitting there by yourself at a mall. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Palisade Center just went there, <laughs> sat on a bench and just sat there so I could get away from it. I was in such a bad mood after that loss. It was brutal. I don't, I don't know. It just really stung me. No, no, this is this is an all timer. And I think the only reason it didn't go to number one for me is because days later they won. And the days after that, they won again and they won the series. And I know I was trying to close my eyes and not think about that and just say, OK, where does this rank in the moment? And much like you, I've got that. I'll never forget anything about that day. Like it was in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, my ex-girlfriend was sitting next to me and I was so giddy about this game. I was doing play by play because we were kicking their ass. We were up by 25 in the third quarter of this game. So I just started doing play by play. I don't know if it was any good, but I, sh- I muted the game. I'm like, hey, Lucius Harris, oh, hey, Terry Kittles for three. It's gone. And so the play by play continues as the fourth quarter starts. And that that's really where the run began. It, it was immediate right out of the gate in the fourth quarter. It probably started the latter part of the third because they were up by 25. That yeah. was the lead that they had late third quarter. And they caught it to 21 going into the fourth quarter. So they must have had like a little bit of a run to start the fourth quarter. And now I'm starting to call, you know, Paul Pierce shots, Paul Pierce layups, all of a sudden, the lead is down to 10. And when it got to 10, I said, all right, I'm done. <laughs> no more no more play-by-play. This isn't fun anymore. But look, you're still up by 10. And I remember Kenny Anderson playing a big part of this, too. Yeah. Rodney Rogers, who would eventually come on our team, playing a big part of this, too, along with, you know, Paul Pierce, Antoine Walker, all that crap. I think there was a part of me that remained confident until they got it to one possession. Like, even when it was six with two and a half minutes to go, it was like, all right, they're going to hold on. It was five with under two minutes to go. All right, we're going to hold on. Once it got to three and it became a one-possession game, I was like, holy crap. Is it possible they blow this game? And I love Kerry Kittles. I do. I love Kerry Kittles. Who doesn't love Kerry Kittles? He sucked in the fourth quarter of this game. I remember him missing a ton of good looks. I remember him turning the ball over. And it was like you couldn't shut the faucet off from this run. And so when they lost the game, I was devastated. And I knew that there was a company party I had to go to. I worked for XM Satellite Radio at the time. And my direct boss, great guy, I'll give him a shout out. Guy by the name of Kevin Straley, who I think works at some, he, he works somewhere now. He's some big highfalutin star somewhere. But he's a Bostonian. I mean, a true blue Bostonian. Red Sox fan, Patriot fan, and yes, a Celtic fan. And there was a lot of trash talk between the both of us early on in this series. And I knew he was going to be at this party that I had to go to. It was a party at the owner of XM Satellite Radio's mansion. So it was going to be this really cool party, especially for me as a 19-year-old working like, oh, this is going to be awesome. They're probably going to have booze there, and I'm going to be able to drink it. This is great. But I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to run into Kevin. And I'm so upset about this loss. And I even said to to my girlfriend at the time, I said, I don't want to go. And she said, no, 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 you're going. You have to. This is a party for the company you work for. You got to go. I said, "Ah, all right, I guess. So I'll never forget going to that party. And I don't see Kevin. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm going to avoid my direct boss, even though I probably should say hello. I'm going to avoid him. And then I see him sitting on a chair. I don't remember if it was a rocking chair or a regular chair. And he had a beer in one hand. And I'm telling you, the shit-eating grin that was on his face (laughs) makes me sick to this day. And I lock eyes with him. And that grin just becomes a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. And I slowly walk over and he says to me, how you doing? You all right? You hanging in there? You okay? Mm. And I said, no, no, I'm not okay. I'm freaking miserable. That was the most. And then I just go on a rant. You know, I couldn't hold it in a rant against my team. And he's just looking at me smirking. And I'll never forget that smirk. But you know what they say, Biseglia? Those who laugh last laugh longest Mm. and so as painful as that was about a week later sweet revenge as the nets did not lose another game in that series and we advanced to the nba finals but in that moment 
whether it's you at the Palisades Mall or me staring at Straley's smirk on his face, that was as bad as it gets. Uh, that, that's that's it. I mean, you, and that's why I think also, too, when we go to these games down, we're watching them and they're up, let's say, the Bucks game two or whatever it might be. In the back of my mind, it's always like – I. There's a there's a point where you reach a comfort zone where you know it's over, but there's always these runs, and I will never, especially in the playoffs, ever be comfortable with a lead because of that Celtic game three. I will never feel like things are in control. I will never get to that point unless it's at that ultimate it's over moment, like that game two versus the Bucks when they went up 110 points. I will never feel confident. I agree. And that's why I think you and I and many net fans will always cite that game. That'll always be a game in net lore and history, despite winning the series that never take anything for granted. And look, a lot of these games featured stuff like that. We mentioned the collapse against the Chicago Bulls. You know, when you have a 14 point lead with three minutes to go, you expect to win. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it is what it is, but we've experienced some of these during the, the worst moments possible. What's funny about those two collapses specifically the collapse against Boston we just talked about and the Bulls game from game four is how the team was able to respond in both of those years, that those games didn't turn out to be the end. And then you throw in the Scalabrini game where the response was losing the next two. And I hate to say it, the response to the Kevin Durant game this year was losing its next two. So we have been given the lesson throughout Nets history that the horrific loss doesn't mean crap and the amazing win doesn't mean crap. It really is a day-to-day -day kind of operation based on what happens next, you know? Now I'm all fired up, Evan. I want to give my top five moments because I there's so many setups from all these bad losses that help for some of the better wins. And, uh, you know, I can't wait till we can dive into some of those good W's and feel good and give some good positive mojo as opposed to thinking about sulking in my rocking chair for my son as i just sat there thinking <laughs> about kevin durant's toe and how close that uh, was to getting the nets to the next round where they would have played the atlanta hawks uh, next time on the brooklyn basketball <laughs> podcast now we'll make you happy next time and then before you know it it'll be time for training camp the preseason the regular season and off we go thank you very much for taking down a nice gingerly walk down memory lane on some of the most painful losses in Nets history. Check out Mike Basegli. He's got a, many a podcast, including the Bad Weather Fans podcast, which is actually a great listen. I listen to you guys every week. And you're still doing um, the Mike Delivers pod, right? That's right. Still talking about Uber Eats delivery stories, talking about food reviews, and then, of course, talking Nets and Knicks, which is an interesting dynamic. Unfortunately, I've been agreeing too much with my Knicks counterpart lately, so that needs to change. Wait till the season starts. Yes. Wait till reality hits the Nick fan when the season actually starts. Just just True. wait for that. And of course, you can listen to me, Craig, Monday through Friday, two o'clock on the fan. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Brooklyn Basketball Podcast.